Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue on in our study through the book of Hebrews. We are pretty much right in the middle of this book, and we're in the central argument. The book really has one argument or one theme that runs through it, how Christ is better, how he's the better mediator. We have most recently seen that he is the better mediator of a better covenant and what that means for us who live in the new covenant, who live in the fullness of God's revelation. And this morning we're going to read together Hebrews chapter 9 as we come to God's word. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open reading along with me as we do. Let me pray for us before we read God's word. Father, we thank you that you have breathed out the scriptures, that you have spoken in the scriptures, and that you continue to speak when Ever your word is read and preached, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak in a powerful way. We lift up our eyes to heaven. We come to you as uh, children who have no bread, begging that you would give us that heavenly bread, Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would feed our souls this morning, that you would make us to hear him and to see him, that you would draw near to us, Lord Jesus, that we would know your indwelling in us, and that we would know more of your ministry as our great high priest. Father, we ask that you would bring us into that heavenly sanctuary as we worship, that you would lift our our minds and our hearts and our souls upward, and that you would give us, by faith, a sight of heaven and glory, and a sight of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We pray that you would be pleased in our worship, that you would bless the preaching and the receiving of your word this morning, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called The most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink, various, literally, baptisms, washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That is the gospel age when our Lord Jesus came. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who makes it must be established. For a will, or a testament, takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, when I was a boy, I used to um, run up to my room. My dad uh, oftentimes would come home and he would bring me a model car or a model airplane. And, And much of my childhood was spent going into my room taking this new model car, sitting down, opening it up, getting the instructions out, laying all the parts out, getting everything ready, and then starting to go to work in building my model car or airplane. And I remember on one occasion I had a 1961 Corvette, which is my favorite car, and I had everything set out, and I started going to work, and about a quarter of the way into the instructions I got bored, and I took the box, and I set it up, and I said, I'm going to make this car without looking at the instructions. And if you're anything like me, you would have to admit you probably hate reading instructions. Most of us probably hate reading details, reading instructions. We would rather look at a finished product and figure out how do we get to that finished product. And I think that some of the frustration that we feel when we look at instructions and go through instructions and don't understand how all of these things are going to work together and why can't we just get there is the frustration we feel when we read things like the institution of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And as we were making our way through the Old Testament, most of us, we love Genesis, we love the narratives, all the exciting things, all the the dangerous things, the deception, the sin, the deliverance, all those great narrative foundations in Genesis. And then we come to Exodus, and we have the Exodus and the plagues, and we have all that God does to Egypt, and it's exciting. And then we come to the mountain, and then God starts to give these very precise instructions. 
And when he starts to talk about the tabernacle, he starts to tell Israel about what the linen should be made out of and the curtains that should go around it and the skin that should go over it and what the priest should wear and all of these details. And as we're trudging, we, we feel like we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into difficult portions of scripture. And most of us get bored with the instructions. And what happens when we come to the book of Hebrews is we are essentially getting the box out and we are essentially setting the picture in front of us. But instead of seeing the physical tabernacle, we see Jesus. Instead of seeing the physical tabernacle that all those instructions were building for Israel, we see Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say is that he is what the tabernacle pointed to. He is the end product. He's the picture and heaven itself is the picture. Notice that he says on several occasions that the tabernacle in the Old Testament was merely a copy. It was a copy of the true tent, the heavenly tent. And he's going to tell us in the next chapter that Christ's flesh was the veil that was torn apart, making way into the presence of God. And so what he's already done is told us in chapter 8 that we have a better mediator of a better covenant, and he's began to tell us something about how Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant, officiating in a better sanctuary. And now what the writer of Hebrews is going to do, he's going to bring us back into the details of the old covenant tabernacle in the wilderness, the greatest architectural design that God gave Israel until the temple. He's going to bring us in there and he's going to show us how all of the things in there were merely preparing us for Jesus. And that when Jesus comes, everything that happened in that tabernacle passed away. Notice the last verse of Hebrews chapter 8. Notice he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What the writer is telling these people who at this point are in danger of going back to old covenant rituals, back to an external ritualistic worship, is that Christ has come and that all of that pointed us to Jesus. And now what he's going to do is he's going to say, come and see. Come and see. Let me show you the finished product. He's not going to take you to a 1961 vet that's a mere model. He's going to take you to the real thing. And he's going to say, get in, take it for a drive. It's yours. And notice here in Hebrews 9 that when he begins to unpack this, the first thing he does is he contrasts all of the things in the tabernacle with all of the things they were merely copies of. Now, in chapter 8, he told us that Moses went up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain and he got the blueprints. He got the blueprints, he brought them down, they went to work, they constructed this tabernacle. Maybe you've seen a picture of the tabernacle. If you haven't, go online, you can see an etching, a drawing, Google Images has lots of them. You can see what we believe the tabernacle looked like. And there were essentially three parts to the tabernacle, but here the writer's going to talk about the first two parts. And notice there in verse 2, he tells us a tent was prepared. A tent was prepared. Why? Why a tent? Why did God dwell in a tent with Israel in the wilderness? I think the best, the best answer we can give to that is because Israel dwelt in tents. God dwelt in the tent because Israel dwelt in tents. God said, I will be your God. I will be with you. And in order to be with them, he had to become like them. He pitched his tent with Israel. He said, I will dwell with you. I will live where you live. I will be your God. You will be my people. I am in your midst. I am here with you. 
I am identifying myself with you. And in doing that, that even that is preparing us for the incarnation of Jesus, isn't it? Why did the Son of God become a baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Why did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Why did the eternal Son of God make for himself a body? Because he said, I will be with you, I will be like you, I will be your God, you will be my people. The Apostle John actually says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. The tabernacle pointed us to Jesus. What dwelt in the tent? God dwelt in the tent. The fullness of God dwelt in the tabernacle. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And so notice the writer of Hebrews, as he begins to draw out these parallels between the earthly and the heavenly realities, he first says a tent was prepared. And then he mentions the two sections of it. The first section, notice he says there in verse 2, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Now, we have to ask these questions. Why? Why was there a lampstand? Why was there a seven-branched lampstand in the what we call the holy place, where the priest went in? And why was there a little table about three feet high by two feet wide by two feet wide? Why was there a little table with a loaf of bread on it put in there every morning? Why? Notice what he says. There was a lampstand, there was a table, and there was a bread of the presence in the holy place. Well, I think as we go back to the Gospel of John, it's interesting the Gospel of John is really an exposition of how Jesus is the greater tabernacle. And Jesus will say several things in the Gospel of John. After we're told that he tabernacled among us, he'll say, I am the light of the world. He is the one who shines the light of the gospel so that men see their way into the presence of God. Just like the lampstand in the most holy place was the only light-providing way into the presence of God. It enabled the high priest to see what he was doing as he went into the most holy place. That is a picture of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. In him, by faith in him, we too become a realization of what that lampstand pointed to. In glory in heaven, we're told that there's no sun or moon, but that the Lord God and the Lamb are the light. And so the lampstand in the holy place was in every way symbolic of Jesus Christ and the light that he provides men into the presence of God. And then if we ask the question, what about the bread on the table? Well, Jesus says in John's gospel, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the true bread. I am the bread that comes down to give life to the world. That bread that stood before the presence of God was symbolically saying that God was giving that bread to his people to sustain them, that God would provide from his presence and from himself and from glory itself a soul-sustaining, nourishing bread. And Jesus said, my flesh is food indeed. I am the bread that comes down from God. He who feeds on me will live because of me. And that's why we have bread in the Lord's Supper. It's why every Lord's Day we come together, we break bread just like this show bread in the most holy place, we are remembering that God feeds us with the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they're dead. I am the true bread. Moses didn't give you the true bread. My father gives you the true bread. And so the show bread was really a picture of Jesus spread out on the table for his people, a feast for his people's souls, that God was going to provide everything that you need for the nourishment of your soul in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice, as the writer of Hebrews is walking us through the Old Covenant 
tabernacle, he takes us through the curtain. Notice there in verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, the holy of holies. Why was there a curtain? That curtain wasn't all that big. It wasn't all that thick in the tabernacle. It was actually a fairly um, small piece of cloth that separated the holy place from the most holy place. But what that curtain said is that your sins keep you from God and that you are not allowed to come in here. Much like the angels in the garden that God set at the east gate so that Adam and Eve could not make their way back to the presence of God in their own strength. That curtain was God saying, I am holy, I dwell in the holy place, you are sinful, your sins have separated from you, and the only person that could go in there was the high priest, but he could only go in once a year with blood for himself and for the sins of the people. And notice that we're told about some of the things that were in there. You know these things well. Verse 4, we're told that inside the most holy place, there was the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on both sides with gold and which was a, a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. He says we cannot now speak in detail, but what he means for us to do is to say, what did they mean? Why did God require in his instructions to Israel that they build a box? It wasn't a big, big box. It was about three feet long, two feet high, two feet wide. And in that box, he put the Ten Commandments. He put Aaron's almond rod that, that blossomed. He put an urn with some of the manna. There was a seat that went over it. Angels came over it and faced each other. Their wings touched each other. And the blood of the sacrifice went on that seat once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when it did, God showed up. And what does that mean? Why, why, does, why does the writer of Hebrews tell us about these things? Well, I think we're meant to say these things also, like everything else, were preparing us for Christ. Notice, notice in, in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into holy places. We're told that these things were copies and they were shadows, that they were all symbolic, that God was pointing Israel away from these things in themselves to the one to whom they pointed. Some of the Israelites got this. Some of them understood that the manna in the pot was God saying, I will provide for you 40 years God provided supernatural bread from heaven for his people. Forty years he sustained their life in the wilderness with the manna. He is the providing and sustaining God. In redemption, God will provide for his people. Aaron's rod that, that budded. Aaron had some men who didn't like that he was the high priest. They challenged his high priesthood. God said, put your, your rods out and whoever's rod blossoms. Rods don't blossom. They're dead wood. Whoever's rod blossoms... He's the one I've chosen. We're to get from that that Jesus is the chosen high priest, the greater Aaron. That God has appointed the high priest, that God has called him to be high priest for us. And then, most magnificent is the seat. Now, the seat is most magnificent because the seat of the ark, which the writer here calls the mercy seat, is actually, first and foremost, the judgment seat. The psalmist will call the ark and the seat on the ark, the throne of God. He'll say, you who are enthroned between the cherubim, Psalm 99, you who are enthroned between the cherubim, the seat without blood on it 
is a judgment seat. And it's a judgment seat because under that seat was the law that stood against you. Those commandments, the Ten Commandments that stand against you, that pronounce judgment on you for all eternity, that reveal that you're not a good person, that reveal that you are, in fact, a very wicked person, that you are totally depraved, that you are pervasively evil, that we love wrongdoing, that we are lawbreakers, as, as the psalmist said, that there are none who do good, no, not one, that the poison of asps is under their tongue, that their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their hearts are perverse and think perverse things. And that law that we have broken, putting other gods before God, taking his name in vain, not keeping his worship pure, not keeping his day holy, dishonoring our fathers and mothers on Mother's Day, a very important law for you to consider, dishonoring our fathers and our mothers, stealing, lying, murdering. Unless we want to call Jesus a liar, we're all murderers. Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. That law that stood against us under the judgment seat of God ought to be a terrifying thing. And yet, it's not called the judgment seat. It's called the mercy seat. Notice what the writer says. He calls it the mercy seat in verse 5. Because when the priest went in and he sprinkled the blood on that seat, the judgment seat became the mercy seat. I want you to think about that. When the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the judgment seat became the mercy seat for you. That means that all of those trans- transgressions are covered, that now God can um, be in your presence and you in God's presence. The holy God can dwell over the ark in between the cherubim, that he can manifest his presence with his people, that you are now, and we'll talk about this in a second, welcomed into his presence. Here's the most amazing thing about this, and we'll get to the blood in a second. The most amazing thing about this whole chapter is that only one person could go into the presence of God in the Old Testament. That's the high priest. And that in the New Covenant, Christ is the high priest. He has gone into the better tabernacle, the greater tabernacle, the one that existed from eternity of which the lesser was just a copy. And he has opened the way for us to go in. And every time you get on your knees and you pray to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are entering into the most holy place. And one day, if you're a believer, you will be carried into glory and you will dwell forever in the true most holy place, in the presence of God, of the God who sits on the judgment seat. And that judgment seat will be a mercy seat for you because of the blood of Jesus. That's the point of what all of chapter 9 is about. That that earthly sanctuary and all the preparations and all the things that the high priest did were all pointing forward to help us understand better what we have in Jesus Christ. Um... As I made my way through this, I thought, you know, I've known this for most of my life, but as a Christian for about 13 years, and thinking about the astonishment of it, and then, and then being sad that I'm often not more amazed at it, and that so many Christians just find it to be just an indifferent thing. It's rare that you find somebody who tells you the book of Hebrews is their favorite book. I understand there's a lot of difficult things. This, these are the richest mysteries of our Lord Jesus Christ that God sets forth for you and says, look, the whole Bible was written to you and it was all about Jesus and it was all preparing you for what he'd do and it's showing you that he is so sufficient that everything that you need is in him and that he is so much greater than you could ever imagine and what he's done for you and the privileges that you have are so much greater than you could imagine. And here's what makes the difference. Number two, here's what makes the difference. Not just that they were a copy, 
but that his blood secured the heavenly things and sanctified you and the heavenly things through the better blood of a better sacrifice of a better priest on a better tabernacle on a people who live in a better covenant and that because of that blood you will one day dwell in the presence of God if you're a believer notice what he says he starts to unpack this more after going through the symbolism and notice what he says in um, verse 12 he says he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood having secured eternal redemption that Jesus's blood was the all-sufficient blood that actually accomplished everything that you needed so that you can go to glory that blood so sanctifies the souls of God's people and what the writer is going to say is look the people, do you understand that Christianity is a religion of blood? That's often a demeaning way that people speak about Christianity, that there were holy wars, that there were, there were all of these bloody wars over Christianity. Some people will lay the Holocaust at the feet of Christianity very wickedly. And yet, it's true, Christianity is preeminently a religion of blood. The Old Testament was a religion of blood. The New Testament is a religion of blood because it's all pointing to the blood of Jesus. And notice what the writer says. There's blood all over this chapter. There's blood everywhere in this chapter. Notice what he says. He says, even in verse 16, verse 18, I'm sorry. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Not even the Mosaic covenant was secured without blood. For when every commandment of the law was declared, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop. He sprinkled the book and the people. Let me, if I can get you to envision this this morning, if you're an Israelite, you're standing there. Moses has just come down. He's gotten the, the, the tablets of the covenant. And here's what he does now. Blood on everything. Blood on the people. Blood on the book. Blood in the tabernacle. My wife asked me this morning, Every year when the high priest went in to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, was there blood all over the most holy place? I said, you know, I imagine there was. You can't get blood out. Blood everywhere. Blood physically on the people. And what the writer's going to say is that that blood of those animals did nothing for the consciences of the people. It sanctified them externally. It made them ceremonially clean before God. It merely made them externally, symbolically accepted to God in the Old Covenant. But what happens in the New Covenant is that the better priest goes into the better tabernacle. When he goes to the cross, he goes to the altar, he lays down his life, and then that blood sprinkles the consciences of the people. I pray on almost a daily basis that God would sprinkle my conscience with the blood of Jesus. I don't even care if I understand what that means all that much. I know it means I have sin. I have guilt. I need that guilt taken away. I need to know that God is pleased. His wrath is satisfied and that I'm accepted and that I can serve him by faith. And that's all I need to know. I don't know how it works. I don't know how Jesus's blood uh, sanctifies the, the heavenly sanctuary for us other than my sins are forgiven. I'm purified. I'm sanctified. I am born of God's spirit. I am born through that blood. I am washed in that blood. I am cleansed in that blood. And notice what he says through that blood. Look at this. He actually says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Here's what it means to have your conscience sprinkled in the blood. You are no longer trying to please God by what you do to gain his acceptance. When the writer of Hebrews says dead works, he means that if you are trying to please God by what you do in any service, it could be Christian service, it could be preaching, it could be anything, if you are trying to please God by what you do to be accepted by him, your works are dead, evil, unregenerate works. And that in the gospel, you don't try to serve God to be accepted. You get washed in the blood because otherwise everything that you do is evil and sinful and perverted and corrupt. That's the point of Hebrews 9. And the point is that Jesus has done everything. He's done everything to bring you into the heavenly tabernacle. Thirdly, we've talked about how those things are a shadow. We've talked about the importance of the blood. And now thirdly, he's going to tell us about the privileges that we have. And I think woven through this chapter, and this is what we want to take away this morning, woven through this chapter are the enormous privileges that you have because the greater tabernacle came in the coming of Jesus and the blood that sanctifies the conscience and cleanses the conscience and sanctifies the people and purifies God's people has been sufficient in the death of Jesus. And now he's going to tell us, he's going to tell us about the privileges. Notice there in verse 15. He says, he therefore is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Now, here's the question. You may say to me, okay, Nick, you're saying the Old Testament didn't do anything. The Old Covenant, sorry, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant and its rituals and sacrifices did nothing for the souls of the people. And then you're telling me that we who live in the New Covenant have blood that cleanses the inside of our being and makes us acceptable to God and washes away our sin and our filth and our corruption and that we get to enter into the most holy place in prayer through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our mediator who's gone to heaven. So what did the Old Testament saints get? What did those people who look past the tabernacle, what did they get? Well, I'd put it this way. They were saved by Jesus just as we're saved by Jesus. They were saved by looking forward to Jesus. We're saved by looking back at the same Jesus. They had the hope of a heavenly inheritance. We have a more secured hope and confident hope of the heavenly inheritance. Because Christ has come, we see more clearly the very things that they had. And notice what the writer says. Notice verse 15. He says that we, and he's talking about old and new covenant believers, receive the promised inheritance. Now notice this. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. To put it simply, Jesus' death on the cross worked retrospectively to cover the sins of the saints, David and Moses and Sarah and all the believers in the old covenant. His bloody death on the cross worked retrospectively to secure the inheritance for them. And in chapter 11, the writer's going to say, they would not be made perfect without us and we will not be made perfect without them and that together one day everybody who's covered in the blood of Jesus gets the eternal inheritance. Old and New Testament, everyone for whom Jesus once for all shed his blood will get the inheritance and that his death has secured the inheritance and I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue this morning that the inheritance is you dwelling forever in the most holy place. 
I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's bringing together, when you think about inheritance, when you think about heaven and glory and what you're going to do, let me put it this way. If you're in Christ, you are going to inherit the privilege of dwelling in the presence of God for all eternity in the most holy place. And that there's no greater inheritance than that. Um, John chapter 14, one of my favorite chapters, and carrying that tabernacle theme through the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, um, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, he's talking about the tabernacle and the temple, he's talking about heaven, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I asked my sons last night, where did Jesus go to prepare a place for us? Eli said, heaven. I said, how did he prepare heaven for us? What did he do? He said, he went to the cross for our sins. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he went to the altar and he offered himself and he shed his blood and he sealed eternal redemption. And then he went to glory and he says to his disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is because Christ has shed his blood, you should be convinced that Christ is coming for you in glory. Notice how he ends this. Notice this in verse 27 and 28. That what the writer of Hebrews wants you to know is that you have been forgiven of your sins, that this glory has been secured for you. Notice this. He says, as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember I said last week that the high priest went into the most holy place, and when he did, the people could rejoice. They knew the blood was going on the mercy seat. They knew God was going to come and dwell with them, manifest his presence again, that they would have their... The, their sins forgiven typically. It would be typified that their sins would be forgiven. But when he came out again, they were reminded that provision for the forgiveness of sins was not yet accomplished because he would have to go back in. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that what Jesus did is so perfect and so complete, there is a once-for-allness about it, and the blood is so efficacious. The blood of Jesus works to such a degree that he is going to come back out of that holy place, but he's coming to get you for salvation. He came once to take away sin. He will come a second time apart, for sin, apart from sin for salvation. Why is this important to us? There is a, there is a psychology to the Christian life, a very complicated psychology, because our souls are complicated. There are many believers that struggle with assurance of their salvation. I was reminded this week, the great John Owen uh, languished for five years without assurance of salvation. Um, John Bunyan, many, 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 many years wrestling for assurance. Then there are others who don't wrestle that much. They have strong confidence in Christ. Then there are others that don't wrestle, and they should wrestle because they're not in Christ. There are those that think they should have assurance, and they shouldn't have assurance because they don't know Jesus. But what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he is setting the sacrifice of Jesus out in such a way that all of us would say, 
I may not understand everything, but I know that I need my sins forgiven. I know that God has provided a sacrifice to take away all of those sins. I know that he was offered once without blemish to God. I know that his blood can cleanse my conscience from dead works, can give my guilty, gnawing conscience rest from the burden and the guilt of sin. And I know that he's coming again to redeem, to to bring me to glory, to be with him where he is in the most holy place. And I will trust him and I will rest in him and I will go to him. You know, I was reminded this week that a great preacher I love said, God does not call us to do great things. He calls us to come to him. God does not call you to do great things. He calls you to come to him. Are you coming to him? Do you have such confidence that God has provided a way into the most holy place that when you get down at night and you pray or in the morning when you get up and you get on your knees and you pray that you realize that you are coming into the presence of the God who dwelt behind the veil and that Jesus has gone there for you and he carries you through with him so that your prayers are accepted, that you are washed in the blood. If you don't, you need to be washed in the blood. For the first time in your life, if you've never done that, if you've never realized that you can only come into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus, you need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. You know, in John 14, that same chapter, where he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Lord Jesus said, I am the only priest. I am the only sacrifice. I go to prepare a place for you. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Let this propel you this week ahead to draw near to God. Let the knowledge of these things draw your soul like a magnet to the throne of God. The mercy seat with the blood of Jesus makes you accepted before God. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants. That's what God wants. That's what I want for us. I hope that's what you want. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we together thank you for the blood of sprinkling of our Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that that precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. We thank you that into the ages that blood will continue to make us accepted, to keep us from falling, to give us access into your presence. Lord, give us greater measure of a taste of what we have even now and give us a greater anticipation, Father, of the inheritance that awaits us of being with our great high priest, the Lord Jesus in glory. We pray that this would be the driving and the drawing motivation of our souls. We pray these things in his name. Amen.